0: Okay. let me make a a couple of very, very quick uh, housekeeping announcements. Number one, very important. Uh, If you have any really valuable objects, cameras, gold coins, be sure to leave them in this room when you leave. And uh, it will be clean tonight. So uh, just a reminder, don't leave anything valuable or even any rubbish in the room. After this next presentation, we'll have a break from 5 o'clock until 6.30, so you can go back to your hotel rooms, do whatever you want to do. Um, I should point out that a few people complain it's a little bit too cold in the room, so we're going to just tweak the air conditioning a little bit. (laughs) Trust me, you do not want it to be hot. but We'll try to make it a little bit less cool for people who find it a little bit too cool for you. Um, The reception will start at 6.30 in the Winter Garden, same location as last night, and then 7 o'clock upstairs in the conference center for dinner. It's a great pleasure to be able to welcome our next uh, presenter. Dan Griswold uh, has a degree in journalism from the University of Wisconsin. He wrote for one of my favorite free trade libertarian papers, the Colorado Springs Gazette, and was involved in uh, daily journalism. He went on and got a, a master's degree in MSC an MSc at the LSE, the London School of Economics and the Politics and and Economics of International Trade. He was formerly the director of the Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute, author of a very, very good book, Mad About Trade. And he is now president of the National Association of Foreign Trade Zones. Dan Griswold.
1: Thank you very much, Tom, and thank you, everybody, for coming to Cato University. I've, I've never uh, I've been in the new auditorium here, but haven't seen it from this perspective. And what a wonderful place. And I give uh, Ed Crane and the staff of Cato that I had the privilege of working with for 14 years uh, credit uh, for making this all possible, as well as all the people who have supported Cato and the cause of liberty over the years. I feel very privileged uh, to come here uh, today. Uh, As Tom mentioned, I had uh, 14 years here here at Cato. A couple of years ago, Tom approached me and said, would you speak at Cato University uh, on a a primer on public policy? Well, that was kind of a challenging subject because I had spent my career, uh, more than 30 years, thinking about and writing about public policy, but always about specific subjects. I would never really stood back and examined the operating software that was behind the apps that I was constantly running on various uh, uh, issues. So I I didn't have to think about it systematically, but what is Tom Palmer's mission in life but to make us all think hard about things that we haven't thought about before? Uh, As I said, or as Tom mentioned, I spent uh, half of my career in the daily newspaper business with a short stint on Capitol Hill as a press secretary. So I was inside the, the belly of the beast Uh, for a couple of years i basically went from uh, crafting words for a politician to writing editorials that plopped on hundred thousand households every morning in colorado springs to writing studies at the cato institute that were read by those editorial page editors and the politicians uh, and their staff now i'm practicing public policy in a more hands-on way as president of the national association of foreign trade zones. It has allowed me to realize what's really been a childhood ambition to move up from a 501c3 to a 501c6. (laughs) That's the IRS section dealing with uh, trade associations. Just a word about NAFTZ. It's a trade association representing uh, over 600 stakeholders around the country who are involved in one way or another in the Foreign Trade Zones Program. The Foreign Trade Zones Program was passed by Congress in the 1930s uh, in response to, and as a way of alleviating the high tariffs of the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act uh, that had passed in 1930. And today the program basically gives producers on U.S. soil uh, access to global resources, materials, components at at reduced or uh, eliminated tariffs so that they can be more competitive in the domestic and and global markets. It's currently helping more than 2,000 companies and 300,000 American workers uh, compete more effectively in global markets from uh, the United States. And all this without subsidies, uh, without loan guarantees, uh, without additional debt, or even a line in the federal budget. So, thank you. Now, I left Cato in January, my first six months uh, at uh, in the 501 C6 world has opened my eyes to this whole universe, and this is very important to public policy, and I'll talk about this uh, a, a little later, uh, of trade associations. Uh, Alexei de Tocqueville would be very, he would not be surprised, and he'd be very pleased today at the universe of private associations that exist out there. Uh, there's one for just about everybody. Here are some of my favorite ones I've come across. Uh, you want to build things and tear them down, there's the Asphalt Roofing Manufacturers Association or the Institute of Scrap Recycling Industries. Uh, if you want to get your heart racing, there's the Sudden Cardiac Arrest Association. <laughs> you want to calm down, there's the Yoga Association or the Board of Registered Polysomnographic Technologists. Can anybody tell me what they are? They're pe- people who test for sleep disorders, yes. If you're hungry for more, there's the National Turkey Federation or the National Frozen Pizza Institute. I'd like to research one of their studies. Uh, So all part of the public policy universe that uh, is is part of making public policy in America uh, today. Well, it's always good to define things, isn't it? What do we mean by public policy? Well, I think it's what the government does for and to society. It's a collective action through government for better or worse. Policy making, as you know, doesn't work exactly like we were taught in our high school civics textbooks. Uh, Here's just a short list of things government uh, can do, and it's a fairly exhaust, just about everything government does, I think, falls into one of these categories. They can regulate behavior, extract taxes, including uh, customs duties, distribute benefits, organize bureaucracies, or make war, uh, or pursue any combination of the above, or refrain from any combination, and of course, not acting as a government policy. In fact, it's often the best policy. Why should we care about public policy? And I'll assume all of you here, by definition, have an interest in public policy. Well, first, it can't really be ignored. Uh, Most of us don't have the option of living in a cave or a cabin up in the woods, even though some people have tried. We all live in a society and a polity that affects us for better or worse. Secondly, if you don't take notice of public policy, it will take notice of you. (laughs) Uh, You can be assured that that vacuum will be filled by other people who are interested in public policy, and there are a lot of people interested in public policy who do not share the commitment to freedom uh, of people uh, in this room. And then, of course, our ultimate goal is to make public policy less important, to defend civil society and expand the personal sphere as the primary arena of human activity and human progress, which it has been through the years. Of course, uh, I need to quote Ayn Rand here, and that's a good quote, I am interested in politics so that one day I will not have to be interested in politics. Well... Let's start some of that analysis. Let's, let's create a framework for thinking about public policy. <clears throat> and I found a very uh, useful textbook here. One of our interns uh, helped me uh, find this uh, when I was here two years ago. Uh, Michael Munger of Duke University in his book, Analyzing Public Policy, Choices, Conflicts, and Practices uh, uh, in 2000. And I think most people at Cato, or I know I did, looking back, we tend to follow this template, even though if we may not be aware of it. This is the operating software whirring in the background as we do, as Cato people do their policy studies. The goal of public pol- thinking about public policy is not merely to describe it, but to, to render a judgment, to come to a normative decision uh, uh, about it. Uh, as Munger said, the process of policy analysis is primarily the gathering of data and the measurement of various values achieved by differing alternatives. Sounds a little academic, but I think that's basically right. Um, And Munger identified uh, five steps to public policy analysis. First, articulating the problem, including likely causation of the problem. Two, selection of criteria for judging success. How do you judge if a policy? Uh, is successful. What do we want to accomplish through a given public policy? Three, the comparison of alternative policies. Four, the consideration of political and organizational constraints. We live in the real world. What is possible to do here in America, here in this world that we're given in 2012? And finally, implementation and evaluation of the program. Well, let's look at each of those uh, in turn. Problem formulation. Uh, Somehow there doesn't seem to be any uh, uh, mental blockage about that here at Cato. Uh, There are lots of uh, problems out there. You just look around. And stating the problem is a big part of it, and here are just some uh, issues that I've dealt with or that are very current, but an example. Reducing unemployment. Promoting economic growth. Offering health care for low-income households. Again, the answer can be doing nothing. Reducing unfunded liabilities for government entitlement programs. One issue I wrestled with when I was here, addressing illegal immigration. And one of the first things you have to do is construct a theoretical model of causation. What has caused this problem to come about? What's behind this problem? What's driving it? Um, And frankly, if you can do that in an intellectually robust way, you're halfway to solving the problem. It's very, very important. I know two issues I wrote about a lot when I was here at Cato, illegal immigration and the trade deficit. That was pretty much the way I started any comprehensive discussion of the subject. How did we get to the point where we have a $500 billion trade deficit? 11 million people here without documentation. Second, selection of criteria. What do we want to accomplish? And this is really about ends rather than means, Uh, ethical issues rather than purely analytical, or normative rather than positive judgments. Where do we want to be? What kind of policy, what what kind of goals do we want to achieve uh, with our policy? And what is our basis for judging and choosing? And here at Cato, in my years here, and I know it continues, uh, they're pretty upfront about their basis uh, for choosing. Individual liberty, free markets, limited government, peace among nations. Those are the north stars uh, that Cato policy is driving us towards. Comparison of alternatives. And this matrix is from uh, Munger's book, I had a little more time, I might have filled it in with some examples. but. Basically, down, down the left-hand column, you have the, the criterion uh, that you want to judge. What, what, are your, what are your values? What are you trying to achieve? And you might have individual liberty, economic prosperity, peace, justice, uh, those sorts of things. And then you have the alternative policies, and, and you have some sort of weighted system. You put more weight on freedom or equality, uh, peace or justice, those sorts of things. Uh, and then you analyze the policies, and you can tote it up. And on the back of the envelope fashion, that can help to guide you uh, towards uh, better better policy. And then, of course, uh, a test of good policy. And that falls into this. It's not a new category. This is expansion of uh, comparing of alternatives. What is good policy? Uh, Talking to Tom Palmer, uh, we decided there are three of them, three main ones, certainly that apply to a lot of our work here. One is a moral argument. Does it violate the rights of individuals? Does it arbitrarily favor one group over another at the expense of another? Does the policy use unnecessary force in an an attempt to achieve some socially optimal outcome? These are are moral questions, Uh, a policy may yield some good but if it tramples other moral considerations then you've got to pause is it constitutional hey what a radical question does it adhere to the rules as laid forth by our nation's founders in our written documents as amended Uh, is it consistent within the american system of limited government uh, and I think Cato just has an outstanding Constitutional Studies Department here under the leadership of my friend Roger Polan and Ilya and Tim and all the others contributing there. And that is the threshold question that they ask. Is it consistent with the US Constitution? Uh, and then impact on economic incentives. This is where our economically trained friends come in. Is it consistent with human nature? Uh, will, will, does it assume that people are angels Uh, in some unrealistic way. Uh, And the consequences may be either intended or unintended. Um, We really have to test a policy on whether it produces uh, the desired and or desirable effects. Will the policy actually work as intended? And And this is where economics, I think, is at its most useful, marginal analysis. Uh, the effect of incremental changes on human behavior, cost-benefit analysis, long-term thinking. Um, Henry Hazlitt. I think uh, this is a great quote from Economics in One Lesson, but it goes right to this point of uh, the criteria with which you judge public policy. He said, a bad economist sees only what is immediate, what immediately strikes the eye. The good, good economist also looks beyond. The bad economist sees only the direct consequences of a proposed course. The good economist looks also at the longer and indirect consequences. The bad economist sees only what the effect of a given policy has been or will be on a particular group. The good economist inquires as to what the effect of the policy will be on all groups. And then uh, one of my intellectual heroes, Frederick Bastiat, great essay, What is Seen, and what is unseen. He said there is only one difference between a bad economist and a good one. The bad economist confines himself to the visible effect. The good economist takes into account both the effect that can be seen and the effects that can be foreseen. Well, here's where we get to political reality. What, What is possible? The art of the possible, political feasibility Will politicians and the public support a policy to make it law? Um, The organizational feasibility. Will appointed officials support it and implement it in a way that makes its success possible? Um, One of my favorite uh, mottos that uh, floats around Cato is radical and relevant. Uh, At Cato, try to be radical enough to just push the envelope of, of polite society in Washington without getting yourself kicked out uh, of of the room and yet be constantly pushing that that envelope. This is about the relevant part. What is possible? What is just within the bounds of respectable debate given the current uh, constraints? For any given policy goal at any given time, there's a range of options. Uh, You maybe have heard of the Overton Window Joe Overton was a wonderful man. I I got a chance to know him before he tragically passed away, I think, in 2003. But he articulated uh, this way of thinking about what is possible called the Overton window. Uh, He used to be a vice president for the uh, Mackinac Center in Michigan, and he describes it as a window of political possibility. Uh, Wikipedia says at any given moment in talking about the Overton window, At any given moment, the window includes a range of policies considered to be politically acceptable in the current climate of public opinion, with acceptable defined as something a politician could recommend without committing political suicide, uh, without it being considered too extreme or outside the mainstream uh, to gain or keep public office. Uh, A given policy at any moment can be unthinkable, this is a, a sliding scale from way outside the Overton window to comfortably inside it. Unthinkable, radical, acceptable, sensible, popular policy. I think at Cato, we're, we're pretty much bouncing between the radical and acceptable uh, uh, thinking. The important, and this gets to the importance of ideas in public policy. Ideas expand the options which are available uh, at public policy. You could think of Cato, among other things, as designed to move that Overton window up the scale towards more freedom. And in this sense, uh, it's interesting that there is a life cycle of ideas. Ideas have consequences, but it can take time for those consequences to percolate through, and we appreciate, I keep saying we, you have to catch me on that, but my spirit is here largely. Cato appreciates the patience of people who support our cause here because we don't guarantee, Cato doesn't guarantee immediate victories. We're trying to change uh, that climate. There are examples on the good side and the bad side. You know, the New Deal didn't just happen in a vacuum. There was all that, quote, progressive thinking, that collect- collectivist thinking that was happening 30 years before. Hayek's Road to Serfdom came at an absolute nadir of appreciation for freedom, and yet, it bore uh, fruit Uh, decades later. Milton Friedman's writing about monetarism uh, and freedom generally. Uh, Ideas percolate up and down from think tanks through academics to more popular outlets, politicians, newspaper editorial page editors, staff, the public. And then, ah, I'll sound like Rahm Emanuel, at a time of crisis, those ideas can be there uh, and they have some respectability, and politicians uh, can turn to them. You know, one example I think we're seeing before our eyes today is drug legalization. I mean, this this was beyond the pale to being radical, and now you have elected presidents of major countries talking about uh, drug, drug legalization. And then, of course, implementation and evaluation uh, of the program. Did it accomplish its goals? And it's amazing how uh, people in Washington forget about this fifth step. Oh yeah, we, we, uh, we solved the healthcare problem. We've passed a poverty bill, we've passed a jobs bill. Let's get on to the next uh, thing we need to solve. Well, this is very important. Intentions are secondary. Uh, they aren't worth very much. What is the real effect of the policy or law that's put in practice? And here again, I think Cato and other think tanks fill an important role. It's not enough to say we passed that law on campaign finance reform or healthcare reform or education reform or blah, blah, blah reform and say the problem is solved. We need to look at market outcomes, political acceptance, expert analysis. And ask the question, did this help us move towards a vision of a freer society? Let me just give you some examples of, I think, uh, very strong analysis in this last category here of public policy analysis. Charles Murray's book, I, I'm a big fan of Charles Murray. He's written many brilliant books. But I'm not sure any's had, uh, any of his work has had such direct public policy effect as losing ground. I remember reading it in ni- 1985 when I was uh, writing editorials, uh, utterly convincing. Uh, He marshals data from 1960 to 1980 showing the war on poverty not only failed, uh, but it harmed the very people it was meant to help. Not only marshals data, but has very compelling thought experiments in there from a very sympathetic point of view uh, towards the people that were supposedly helped. And about a decade later, uh, we passed welfare reform. It wasn't perfect, uh, but it was a step in the right direction. Uh, and I think Charles Murray's book had a big uh, cause in that. Uh, my friends at the uh, Center for Educational Freedom here at Cato, uh, Neil and Andrew and uh, all the others, uh, you've seen this graph, I think it, they make a point to put it on uh, Cato at Liberty about twice a month, but it's devastating. Uh, their spending, per capita real spending, going up and up, results flat, Uh, to disappointing. This is the kind of post-policy analysis that must be done for a proper understanding of uh, public policy. Well, let's talk a little bit about how public policy is made. And this is where uh, our illusions really uh, do come crashing down. Uh, It's a messy process. You lose your idealism very quickly uh, when you come here, uh, to Washington, that famous uh, remark by Otto von Bismarck, laws are like sausages, it's better not uh, to see them being made. There is a lot of truth to that. And we've seen some pretty ugly sausage-making uh, in recent years, and this isn't just a Democrat or Republican thing, but uh, Obamacare, just because it's so fresh. You know, Who learned about deem and pass when you were in high school civics? Uh, but that was a device they used to get around uh, cloture. Uh, in in the Senate. Uh, So the process is messy. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the players. Very interesting array of players. You can see trade associations floating around there, think tanks, um, and then models of how these various players interact to produce public policy. And this really gets to the who uh, of public policy. And another book uh, that I found useful was The Players, by John Kingdon, a policy, political science professor at the University of Michigan. Basically said there are participants inside government. Uh, we all know who those are, the administration, Capitol Hill, the courts, who, uh, depending on your perspective, legislating from the bench, civil servants, bureaucrats, uh, not just on a federal level, but we've seen in Wisconsin and elsewhere how bureaucracies and unions uh, can play such an important role in public policy. You know, uh, regulations, this is part of my, the last six months in the uh, 501c6 world have been quite an education for me. The, uh, <clears throat> I sort of miss being able to put my feet up on the desk and read academic studies for an afternoon, think deep thoughts. I actually have to run a, a, a small association and a, a board. Uh, but I have learned a lot more about not just the policy makers on Capitol Hill, but the policy implementers out there uh, in, in the agencies. And there you can have all kinds of mischief, a lot of well-intentioned people, but you can have regulations design, uh, uh, on their face designed to do one thing when in fact uh, they do another thing. I know in the trade area there's a whole area of jurisprudence uh, having to do uh, with you know, regulations of uh, sanitary and phytosanitary uh, uh, stuff, food uh, and all those regulations. Uh, They say they're designed for public health when, in fact, they're disguised uh, trade bearers. No law was passed. Uh, This is an important arena of public policy implementation. Uh, In in my my job as president of the National Association of Foreign Trade Zones, I've had, uh, I guess it's the privilege, uh, of visiting uh, a number of agencies in Washington that I had never set foot in before, and there's one of them I'd never heard of before, Since in the last six months, I've been to OMB, Office of Management and Budget, uh, uh, Customs and Border Patrol, the Food and Drug Administration, Census, the Foreign Trade Zones Board, which is over in uh, uh, Commerce. And I even visited the offices in suburban Maryland of APHIS. Does anybody know what uh, agency APHIS is? It either sounds like a a Chinese ripoff of a car rental company (laughs) or uh, some kind of bug uh, that might infest your garden, APHIS. Anybody know what APHIS is? Can you tell me? I, I didn't know either. The Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service uh, that has an interest in what comes into foreign trade zones and, and uh, they don't want to have uh, pests or rabies come into the country. Uh, so anyway, that's government. They're players. They're real players that we need to pay attention to. And then there are those who are outside government, but not just looking in who are influencing public policy as well. And here you get into interest groups, including trade associations, academic researchers, consultants, including think tanks, the media, opinion makers, voters. So these are the players. Let's talk about some models of public policy uh, uh, analysis. And these are models of how these players interact to form Public policy. And I want to talk about some of these very quickly, and then I want to camp out on public choice for a while because I think it offers some some special uh, uh, insights. These models are merely conceptual, as all models are. Uh, Public policy is complex, and and though models can't explain everything, their their simplification of reality can can be useful. Here are some different models that people use to explain public policy. Uh, one is uh, institutions. It's all determined by institutions, primarily government, uh, and how these institutions interact. Uh, there's the uh, good old process model. That's what we did learn in high school civics class about how bills uh, are are paid, bills are passed. Uh, there's rationality, and that just assumes that uh, public policies are right, that somehow we, we stumble our way towards the right policy uh, each time in a way that maximizes social gains, assumes perfect information, individual preferences. Uh, these are uh, assumes we're governed by enlightened rulers. I didn't find that one terribly convincing. Uh, there's a whole theory of incremental change. This one I think is more robust, that especially in our system, that change comes about. Uh, incrementally, over time, evolves uh, to one day we wake up and we've got a certain uh, policy in place. Uh, This is a whole idea of common law. I really, I do think it echoes Hayek uh, and uh, a whole idea of kind of policy and social uh, evolution. There's thinking about public policy that's just all about interest groups. It's what interest groups want and they battle and who has the most money and who has the most uh, uh, energy. Uh, that special interests determine outcomes. This one's very popular. It's the special interests that are to blame uh, for everything. Uh, There's an an, an elite uh, theory, and that is, and this is loved by conspiracy theorists, you know, the Trilateral Commission runs everything, the Main Street Media, the rich, Wall Street. um, The masses are viewed as basically passive and unengaged and victimized. Let me talk a little bit about public choice theory. By the way, that's me, Uh, you know, when we were uh, remodeling Cato, that doesn't do it justice, expanding Cato, I was part of a contingent over on K Street, so I actually had a, a, I was part of the problem. I had a corner K Street office for a while, and then I moved back here to my new office for a month before moving uh, to my uh, new employer where I have a corner office on K Street. So that was really behind my move. I lusted for that office on, on K Street But let's talk a moment about public choice. It's public policy as collective decision-making by self-interested individuals in government and operating in government. It uses economic tools to examine political uh, behavior. Uh, Tulloch and Buchanan uh, described it as politics without romance. Just because people become government actors does not mean that they suddenly shed their human characteristics and become perfectly benevolent. Believe it or not, that's a radical thought. Um, Interest groups pursue their interests in the political arena, surprise, surprise. I think it reinforces an assumption here at Cato uh, that we don't question people's motives. We're trying to change the incentives uh, of, of the system. It's not a question of just electing or appointing good people, but of arguing for more freedom and better institutions. And of course, uh, political systems generate rent-seeking, rent-seeking, special interest groups seek favors or rents from the government, subsidies, regulatory advantages, such as restrictions on competition, owe tariffs. Um, And then you've got uh, K Street lobbyists And of course, this is a huge cost. Wasted resources, uh, both through the public sector and the private sector. Uh, Big government encourages rent-seeking. There's more spoils to be divided uh, and more threats to be opposed, and lobbying is good. They're trying to fend off government from strangling their freedom. Uh, As P.G. O'Rourke put it, uh, when buying and selling are controlled by legislation, the first things to be bought and sold are legislators. You know, it's the campaign finance debate, and I think this, this was John McCain's critical mistake and everybody else who puts their hope uh, in campaign finance form, reform. We do not have big government because of special interests. We have special interest lobbies, so many of them, because of big government. If we reduce the size of government, you'll reduce the activities and the influence and the deadweight loss of special interest lobbying. You have the problem of concentrated benefits and diffused costs. Again, what is seen and what is unseen. Uh, And this is very important in the trade arena. You can erect protectionist trade barriers that protect a special interest, the steel workers' union, the sugar growers, and they benefit. That's why they spend millions of dollars lobbying for trade protection. It's visible. Politicians can say, I kept this steel mill open. But what are the costs? Well, they're greater pretty much by definition, by standard economic analysis, than the gains from trade protection. But the gains are, the the losses from protectionism are spread out over millions of consumers who are barely aware they're being fleeced. And majority voting is no guarantee of good public policy. It's not a radical thought either, is it? Majorities can be wrong. They can ignore the moral, the practical, and the constitutional criteria for judging Policies. And our founding fathers certainly understood that. They didn't give us a majoritarian democracy, they gave us a republic uh, of defined, limited, enumerated powers. In fact, majorities can produce unrepresentative, (laughs) irrational results. We need to keep this in mind. Let me talk a little bit about. Arrow's impossibility theorem. Kenneth Arrow won the Nobel Prize, I think primarily for this work. For individual preferences, our preferences must be transitive. Uh, Think of it this way. If an individual prefers Coke over Pepsi and Pepsi over Dr. Pepper, then he must prefer Coke over Dr. Pepper. Otherwise, he could never reach a final decision, right? The three of them are in the refrigerator and he keeps going... Uh, around and around. Well, Kenneth Arrow, in 1952, proved mathematically that there is no rule, majority voting or otherwise, for constructing rational, transitive social preferences from the collection of arbitrary individual alternatives. Arrow defined a, a fair voting system. <clears throat> and I think uh, we have elements of all these. Each voter can have any set of rational preferences. They just have to be uh, transitive. And this requirement is called universal admissibility. If every voter prefers choice A to choice B, then the group prefers A to B. If that makes sense. This is sometimes called the unanimity condition. If every voter prefers A to B, then any change in preference that does not affect the relationship must not affect the group preference for A or B that affects this, this relationship, all, all, all common sense. And then there's no dictators. Well, <clears throat> here's, here's the problem. Walk through this trade problem uh, w- with me. I'm sorry to make our brains work so hard at the end of the day, but <clears throat> think of three equally weighted interest groups, the blues, the reds, and the whites. They all have different preferences of trade policies towards China. This, this is fairly uh, practical, <clears throat> and, and here are their preferences. So the blues, their first preference is unilateral free trade. They can't have that. They'll have a trade agreement with China. They can't have that. Last resort, we'll engage in a trade war. <clears throat> the reds, they're spoiling for a trade war. They can't have that. They'll have unilateral free trade. They can't have that. They'll have a trade agreement. The whites, they want a trade agreement first. Then a trade war, their last best option is unilateral free trade. Well, <coughs> if you walk through how, how they would vote then, if you, if you put it up to an individual vote, uh, how would it turn out? Well, it turns out that these are not <coughs> transitive preferences. They're, they're, they're caught in an endless loop. Uh, Unilateral free trade will trump. If if these two choices are put before the public, unilateral free trade will trump a trade agreement. But a trade agreement will trump a trade war, and a trade war will trump unilateral free trade. This this is an important insight. A a public, collective decision-making process can get caught up in an endless loop that leads to irrational outcomes. Now, I don't want anybody to get discouraged. Uh, Public choice is not fatalism. It doesn't mean that we're destined to have bad policies uh, because politicians are just like uh, the rest of us. Good policies can win out despite the self-interest of politicians, the tilted playing field against free markets and all the bad ideas floating around. And I think the Cato Institute is proof of that, Uh, the fact that our country is still as free as it is. Uh, is proof of that. Good ideas and the right circumstances have produced significant advancements for liberty uh, over the years. Let me just end just saying what, what can we do uh, as citizens? Uh, you can vote or you cannot vote. I think they're both respectable choices. Uh, you can work through political parties. You can fund think tanks. Great idea if it's the right one. Uh, You can write letters to the editor. They're very influential. Uh, Articles, blogs. This is something that didn't exist 20 years ago. Uh, You can write books. You can meet with government officials, whether it's uh, APHIS or the FDZ board, or your local zoning board. We need to keep making the case for liberty by making sure our arguments are heard. You know, people say your vote doesn't count, your voice doesn't count. It's a bit like going to a stadium and rooting for the home team. Collectively, uh, it does have an influence on policy, and we can all be rooting for liberty, knowing that in our small way, we have played a part in promoting uh, the progress of mankind. Thank you very much.